So this morning, we are in part five of a series we've been calling Your New Default. And what we're trying to drill down to now is to kind of help us identify and maybe even change some of our defaults. So what do we mean by that? As we said a few weeks ago in part one, uh, that we all have defaults. Uh, And for most of us, the default is a reaction to something or everything. And you and I have a default reaction to almost everything. And our default is rarely great, right? It's rarely helpful. It's rarely something that we're proud of. So we started the series in part one a few weeks ago talking about the default that a lot of us have toward judgment. So we took some time looking at why judging others is a bad idea. Then in part two, we talked about our default of distrust and suspicion, And we talked about moving from a place of suspicion to a place of trust. And we came away asking the question, what if we decided that even though we don't always know what's going on in the lives of the people around us, there must be a perfectly good explanation for their behavior? What if we asked that question? What if we phrased it that way? Then we talked about the default to anger. And we said that anger says, you owe me. So we asked the question, who owes me? And why do they owe me? And we talked about this process of moving from a default towards anger to a default toward gratitude. Then last time we talked about blame and that we are usually perfectly content to assign blame because blame is so easy to assign and responsibility is so difficult to assume. And we said that the practice of blame often signals the presence of shame. And that got a little heavy. So we won't revisit much of that, but you can always uh, check it out on our podcast or on demand on our website on the media player. Because we said the bottom line, we can make excuses or we can make progress, but we can't make both. So today we're going to tackle another common and challenging default, and it's the default of control. Because we love to think we're in control. And just the idea of giving up that control kind of weirds us out and makes us a little uncomfortable. So let me ask you this. Rhetorical question, not meant to be answered out loud. Do you, re- do you remember the first time you realized you weren't in total control of your life? You're like, what are you talking about? Okay, well, you just hang in there then. Uh, life will show you eventually. Uh, see, we tend to think that, do you remember that? Do you remember the first time you realized you weren't in total control of your life? We tend to think that we have life by a string, like there's a string that runs to our relationships and one to our finances and one to our kids, and we assume that we can make them all like do what we want, and we assume that if we work hard enough and we apply ourselves enough and we pray hard enough, whatever that looks like, eventually we'll be able to manipulate the circumstances to our benefit. Trouble is, life doesn't work that way. The human experience doesn't work that way. Because the greatest of all illusions is the illusion of control. I don't know about you, but I like control. Like, I love it. It's one of my favorites. I love control. Some of you need to be quiet right now. But um, (laughs) I know it about myself. I know. I like to know where God is going 
exactly what he's doing, the exact route he plans to take to get there, how we're getting there, the timetable would be great. I want to know exactly when we will arrive. And then I like to remind God of his need to behave in ways that fit my clear ideas of him, right? I have a box. God, would you fit in this, please? This doesn't actually work out so well, I've discovered. It's not, listen, and it's not the kind of relationship that our Heavenly Father has invited us into. So in the Old Testament, in books of 1 and 2 Samuel, first of all, there's some weird stuff in there. Actually, we're going to talk about a little bit of it today. But we find the story of David, shepherd boy who would become famous for killing Goliath and then would eventually become the king of Israel, perhaps the most famous king of Israel. And by the time we get to the middle of 2 Samuel, and it's just been like one victory after another victory for King David. And by chapter 15, we come into David's story at a point where he's been king for several years, his children are grown, and there is turmoil in his family. So his firstborn son is Amnon, who is going to be the next king. That's how it works, right? However, there's a problem with Amnon. He found himself attracted to a woman named Tamar, who happened to be his half-sister. And even back in those days, Lusting after your sister was frowned upon. There's a lot of stuff that was just like accepted. Even that was frowned upon. So one day, Amnon gets the bright idea to pretend that he's so sick that Tamar has to come like take care of him and he can be alone with her. And, where I, like, and I wonder when I read the story where he learned to manipulate circumstances like this. I wonder who modeled this for him. If you know the story, you know exactly who modeled it for him. So just as planned, Tamar comes in to take care of him and while she's there, he's pretending to be sick and he assaults her. So now we really have a problem. After he's committed this egregious wrong against his half-sister and caused her all this emotional turmoil, Amnon decides then he wants nothing to do with her. So he tells her he never wants to see her again, and he has her thrown out of the palace because he's a king-in-waiting, so he's got some power. Needless to say, she's devastated. So word gets back to David, and he makes a very unwise choice to ignore the entire situation. Like, David might be a great man of God, right? But as a parent, he had his shortcomings, to put it mildly. David has another son, Absalom, Tamar's full brother, who can't ignore the injustice. So he bides his time, planning out the best way to take revenge on his brother. Absalom waits two full years and then throws a big party. It's, 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 it's a... Uh, it's, it's a Master trick right here. And again, he's learned from the best. And he invites all of his brothers and sisters. And at the party, in front of everyone, he comes up and murders Amnon. He purposely revenges his brother's assault against his sister by publicly murdering him. Then the following week, they all appear on Jerry Springer to tell their side of the story. <laughs> I mean, can you believe this kind of family dysfunction? You know what I mean? It's like, Wow. You can't make this stuff up. After the murder, Absalom becomes a fugitive. So now David's daughter, Tamar, is reeling, dealing with the aftermath of her brother assaulting her. David's firstborn son, Absalom, or sorry, Amnon, is dead. And his younger son, Absalom, whom David dearly loves, is a murderer on the run. So it's all going great right about now. So years go by. And eventually, Absalom returns to Jerusalem and starts to serve as kind of this judge and mediator and advisor outside of the city. The Bible says that over time, people start to come to him, and over time, he starts to turn the hearts of the people. 
So he's a leader that they like. And David the king is busy with all kinds of things, whatever it is that kings do, and he can't, they can't get to him anymore. But Absalom is accessible. And Absalom understands them, and he gives them his time, and he listens to them. And in their minds, he's what David used to be. So Absalom, who's still furious with his father for not protecting Tamar, has another plan up his sleeve. So with the hearts of the people on his side, he devises an elaborate scheme to overthrow David, his father, and become the next king. So in 2 Samuel 15, verse 13, a messenger comes to David with the news that Absalom's conspiracy is gaining strength. It says, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. That's what the messenger says to David. This has to be a painful moment for David. Because remember, like he spent his whole adult life like preparing and living out this dream to be king. And this is all he knows. It's not only what he does, it's who he is. And in one sentence from this messenger, his entire reality starts to come crumbling down. Up to now, David's managed to ignore all the warning signs, right? Up to now, he could hope and pray that one day he and Absalom would be reconciled. Up to now, he could hope that his dream of being king would not be threatened. But then reality sets in, and his son has, in effect, declared war on him, and his dream is clearly at risk and will likely shatter. Do you remember a moment like this in your own life? when you could no longer ignore the reality that what you'd hoped for was not to be. This is the moment when your wife tells you she's called a lawyer and it's over. When the school counselor informs you that your kid is using drugs. When your dream guy says he just wants to be friends. Your boss looks you in the eye and says, I have no other option. Today is your last day. The moment you, your doctor tells you there's really nothing more we can do. I just have to picture David quietly sitting alone, allowing these words to echo over and over. Your, your son's going to war with you. He's going to take over your kingdom. You can't ignore reality any longer. You've got to make a choice here. So what does David do next? Does he run from the problem like he did when his friend Jonathan shared the news about Saul wanting to kill him? Does he lie and manipulate his way as he tried two years ago when his dream of being king was threatened? Does he take charge of the situation and start rallying his troops to resist Absalom and his attempted overthrow? So what's he do? Well, here's what happened. We're in 2 Samuel 15. This is verse uh, 14. Then David said to all his officials who are with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he'll move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And the king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king chooses. And this decision like comes as a shock to the people around David. Like they never expected him to just roll over, right? They thought he would be up for the fight. That's what he's known as the warrior king. The old David would have been like strategizing and spinning and working the system. But instead he's like, pack it up. Let's get out of here. Let's go. If my son wants the throne, he can have it. Like why is David giving up his rights to the city? And he never actually says so, but I wonder if his mind goes back to the, the situation in a town called Nob, where he visited um, Ahimelech, the high priest, 
And Saul rolls in and kills all the priests and their families because David lied. Like, I wonder if that whole deal had a lasting impact on him. Hundreds of people are killed because he lied and manipulated the truth. Like, in his frantic attempt to control his circumstances, he abandoned so many of his core values. Maybe he's not willing to do that again. So he peacefully leaves the city and the crown to his ambitious, angry son. The story doesn't end there. Go down to verse 24. Zadok was there too. I'm like, oh good, Zadok was there. Excellent. And all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the Ark of God back into the city. If I, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Like, I don't know if you caught those last words. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Like, he can do whatever he wants to me, whatever he wants with me. And those words represent a monumental shift in David's life. In this moment, David is doing more than giving up his throne. He's specifically recognizing the fact that God is God and he is not. He's recognizing the reality that all control is simply an illusion and surrender to God is not just the appropriate option, it's the only option. He's like, just because my will won't be done, he's like, doesn't mean that God's will won't be done. I'm not going to try to like maintain control and main, like control what I can't actually control, right? But this is not the story I would write. But hey, I'm not God. I will abandon my dream, but not my God. The greatest of all illusions is the illusion of control. I have to admit that this whole concept of giving up control is really tough for me. But control is an illusion. We don't like being reminded of that. We want to control the outcomes in our lives. We want to win, if at all possible. We want to be right. We want it done our way. And this, this powerful desire leaks into our relationships and our marriages and our jobs and our parenting. And we buy into the illusion of control and we keep a death grip on what we think are the marionette strings. Let me ask you this. Have you ever eaten humble pie? Life has a way of humbling us, doesn't it? Letting go of control like David did is humbling. It's a humbling and painful act. According to 2 Samuel 16, as soon as David's people are out of the city, Absalom and his men move in and take control. Absalom takes possession of everything that belongs to his father, including the throne. That's not enough for David's son, who decides to inflict further embarrassment and pain. And even though David has peacefully left the city, Absalom gathers his army and goes to find David, intending to meet him in battle. The last thing David wants to do at this point is to go to war with his own son. But Absalom's kind of forced his hand. And David, of course, is a great warrior, right? That's his, that's his legacy. He's a brilliant military strategist. He shines in battle even when he's forced to defend himself against his own son's army here. Like his army crushes Absalom's army. And Absalom, against David's command, is killed in the battle. And David regains the throne. The victory is bittersweet. 
And David weeps over Absalom's death, but he's still king. Like he's retained the throne after all. And he's done it not by manipulation, but by surrender. He had to get to the point where he could say, not my dream, not my picture of the way my life should be, but your dream, God. Here's the deal when it comes to your shattered dreams and your unmet expectations. When life doesn't turn out the way that you thought it was going to turn out, you may think that you're losing control. But the truth is, you never had control in the first place. The only thing you control is how you respond to your disappointments and your unexpected obstacles. Like, here are some options. Like, you can, you can we, this is where we have some options, I should say. You can, you can allow the river of, of fear and anger and disappointment to just, like, rage. But you need to know that that rage will affect every relationship that you touch, every job that you have, every plan that you dream. It's just the way that things work. So the fear and the anger and the disappointment you picked up maybe in college, you carry into your marriage. And the fear and anger and disappointment that you picked up through some experiences in your marriage, you carry into your parenting. And the, the fear and anger and disappointment that you maybe picked up in your parenting, you carry into your career or vice versa. Like it all is intertwined. Like we've all met people who live their lives bitter after some kind of life experience that didn't turn out the way they wanted it to turn out. They're just like consumed by bitterness and it leaks out all over the place. And they never, because they never worked through the pain and they continue to inflict emotional turmoil on themselves and others. So that's probably not the best option, but it's certainly an option. Another possibility is, is just like keep trying harder. Like you can turn yourself inside out trying to like make things happen. You can keep throwing yourself at your problems, wear yourself out pulling all the puppet strings. The truth is you can pull and tug, and pull, and tug, and twist, and pull, and still have your dreams dissolve in front of your eyes, perhaps along with some of your most treasured relationships. But there's, there's another option. You can get to the place where you can say, not my will, God, your will. And if we can do that, if we can leave the puppet strings in the hands of someone who actually knows what he's doing, we have a lot better chance of surviving life's disappointments. In my early years of pastoral ministry, I used to feel like pressure to explain and reassure people that God has a plan. I've actually come to despise that language. I do. So when you say, well, God has a plan, and I look at you funny, just know I'm submitting my response to the Holy Spirit. (laughs) God... God has a plan? Really? Like, what does that even mean? Like, what does that mean? Like, does God have a plan for my free will? Because if He does, it ain't free will. And if that's the case, I ain't interested. What does that mean? I used to feel this pressure to explain that when bad things happen. Well, God has a plan. Well, that's a nice platitude, but it simply doesn't make sense and it doesn't help. Because here's the thing. Like, I haven't always been able to see how God could work through some situations. Ever been there? Well, I found that during those times, if I kind of go back to Romans chapter 8 and not the verse you're thinking of. In verse 25, where the Apostle Paul says, if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit, listen, helps us in our weakness. 
For example, he says, we don't know what God wants us to pray, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. Sometimes it takes a while, but looking back, you can see it is in the very act of saying, I can't, that you begin to heal. In the process of giving up control, listen, you're giving God permission to work in your life. I suspect that's the real beauty of surrender. Because giving up control is difficult, it's painful, it's messy, but it makes room for God to work, healing us from the past pain, helping us move forward, hopefully into a fresh future. There's another guy in the Old Testament, and I love his story as well. His name's Joshua. He found himself in one of those stretching situations where he had one plan in his head, but God uh, like took him in a totally different direction. So let me give you the context of what's going on when we meet Joshua in the Bible. He's a Hebrew living in the wilderness. His parents' generation was the one that God led out of slavery in Egypt. And under Moses' leadership, they journeyed toward the promised land, to the place of like freedom and plenty that God had said he would take them. And at some point in the journey, Joshua becomes one of Moses' assistants. And they actually reach the banks of the Jordan River, and the bound, which is the boundary of the promised land, and then things went wrong, like very early in their 40 years of time in the wilderness, okay? They, met, they reached the banks of the Jordan River. Then there's a series of like misfires, like where the Hebrews had a chance to move into the promised land, but they just couldn't manage it. Like fear of the unknown kept them from realizing all that God had for them. So for years, I mean, I say years, I mean years, 40 years, they wandered around having a glimpse of the life God had called them to but not quite able to experience it. And meanwhile, the first generation of Israelites who had left Egypt were dying off. Then Moses died. And the baton of leadership passed to Joshua. And God told Joshua, he's like, okay, it's time to get moving. And that's where we find him at the start of the story. It's his responsibility now to lead God's people into the promised land. So as Joshua and this new generation of Israelites stand on the banks of the Jordan, God has some important words for them. And he speaks them through Joshua in chapter 1 of Joshua. It says, After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River into the land I'm giving them. I'm promising you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set foot, you'll be on land I've given you. He says, no one will be able to stand against you as long as you live, for I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. So be strong and courageous, for you're the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors that I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Don't deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you'll be successful in everything you do. So study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you'll be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I have to assume that Joshua is prepared to lead the people. He spent years as Moses' aide training for this moment. So nothing God's saying here is really new to him. God's just giving him a little pregame pep talk. Like, like Joshua, just remember what you know. 
Like, be strong, be courageous. You can be strong, you can be courageous because of this, because of what you know. And remember, whatever you do, don't forget, I'm with you. And then God has a few words for Joshua's people as well. He says, don't live in fear. I don't want you to make the same mistake that your parents did, that the previous generation made. Listen to me, pay attention to my instructions. And we're going to go forward. And finally, God makes the whole nation a promise. He says, if you trust me, if you follow me, I'll be with you. Every place you set your foot in that land, I've already gone ahead of you. My power will be available to you. You're not going to undertake the rest of your life on the power of just your own resources. I'm with you. There's a great promise. Joshua and the Israelites must have found it extremely encouraging. But then two chapters later, God gives Joshua some instructions that will put this promise to the test in chapter 3. He says, now choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And the priests will carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. And as soon as their feet touch the water, the water of the Jordan River, the flow of water will be cut off upstream and the river will stand up like a wall. So I can already hear the conversation going on in Joshua's, Joshua's head. He's like, like, God, you want me to do what? Like, you want me to, to cross what? How's this? I don't understand. Like, I've just taken charge. Like, you want me to convince people it's a good idea? Like, right now, let's do it. Let's cross the Jordan now? Like, when you promised success, I didn't think it was going to involve this. But these are the instructions. God spells out very clearly the next step Joshua and his people need to take. And what happens next will be a defining moment in Joshua's life. And at one point or another, we all reach these defining moments, kind of a point of decision. Well, for Joshua's people, the Jordan River marks both a literal and symbolic boundary, right? It's what stands between them on this side and the life that God is calling them to on the other side. It's something they have to get across and get through in order to have the future that God has promised to them. And here's where things start to get a little bit interesting. Joshua 3 uh, verse 15 tells us that the Jordan is at flood stage when God gives his instructions. So I see, I don't know if you've ever seen a raging river at flood stage, right? I assume this means that all the water like from the mountain range is pouring down that long descent, filling the riverbed with very deep, extremely fast-moving water. It's overflowing its banks. There's no bridge. There are no boats. Boats probably would have been swept away anyway. And God's telling Joshua to just lift up the Ark of the Covenant and step into the flood. It's all going to be good. This is a control or surrender situation at its finest. Control says... All right, sounds good, God. We're going to walk across the river. We're just going to wait a few weeks for the floodwaters to recede a little bit, and then we'll do it. It's, it's, it's not going to be easy, but at least it's possible. It can be done. Like surrender in this situation doesn't look very inviting. It looks downright suicidal. Sometimes that's the point because control or surrender situations force us to rely on a power beyond ourselves. And that's what Joshua and the Israelites were really dealing with. Like what was going to be extremely difficult has now become seemingly impossible. Like they've come all this way and spent all this time. And there's a promised land just on the other side of the Jordan. And there's no way to get across. And they wonder what in the world Joshua has done. What in the world has God done? So what happens next with Joshua? And this might be hard to believe, but even though he and his people faced this seemingly impossible barrier... They're exactly where God wants them to be. So remember the instructions? God says, I want you, I'm going to make a way for you. I'm going to allow you to cross the Jordan River, but I want you to go down, put a foot in the water. And when you do that, I'll get you across safely. So picture the Israelites approaching the flooded river, 
led by a group of priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence that they've been carrying in the desert their whole lives. And I'm sure there are certain days that the priests would have, like in all those years, there are certain days the priests would have fought over who would get to be in the front and carry the Ark. Not today. Um, They're perfectly fine letting the other guys do it. But they're walking right towards a death trap. And God's teaching His people a huge lesson. Israel's facing an obstacle, a barrier, a particularly terrifying set of circumstances. They've got to get across the Jordan to get to God's life for them. And God has promised that His power and his, is sufficient to make all that happen. And God will deliver them. God will make a way. But they have to take the first step. They will not see God's power. They'll not experience His faithfulness until they get their feet wet. And God tells them, I want you to take one step into the Jordan. And then you'll see me at work. And that's how trust works. Here's what happens. Joshua 3, verse 15. It was the harvest season. The Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point began backing up a great distance away. God is teaching His people, I have so much power. I don't want to manifest it in your life. But if you want to see my power, you've got to take some action too. Like you have to take the risk. You have to take the step. You have to take the spiritual risk of trusting me first. And I think he's teaching us this too. We have to take this kind of risk if we're going to live the kind of life God has called us to live, to be the people that God dreamed of when he brought us into existence. I think a lot of us miss out on this kind of life because we make this unconscious vow that we will only trust ourselves, right? The things we think we can control. This isn't really about David or Joshua this morning. It's about us. It's about you and me. It's about us. So I want to ask you, what's your Jordan River? Like, what is your control or surrender situation? Like, where is God asking you to take a seemingly impossible step? Because here's what I know. Eventually, everybody faces a Jordan. Every one of us faces a barrier that keeps us from the life God has for us. So what's your Jordan? Like, what's your barrier? What's keeping you from the future God has for you? Is it a relationship that's falling apart? Is it an addiction you can't seem to conquer? Is it a financial hole you don't think you'll ever be able to dig yourself out of? Like, where is it that you're having a hard time trusting God? I think God's words for Joshua as he stands beside the Jordan are also words for each of us. And God says, I've already gone before you. I'll be there for every step you take. I've occupied the land. But like, you've got to choose surrender. Like, you've got to take a step. Because stepping into the Jordan, whatever your Jordan is, always involves overcoming fear. And God keeps repeating. He told Joshua over and over again, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I just think it's super interesting that God didn't part the water until the first priest put a foot in it. Don't you hate that? <laughs> Let's be honest. I don't want to like I don't want to have to wait until I get all the way like in like till my feet get wet. 
for God's power to show up. I don't want to have to put my foot in the water. I want God's power when I'm like 50 yards away. Like it'd be great as I'm approaching. I think I can see the river. Oh yeah, there's a dry path right through the middle of it. Let's go. That would be great. Like I'd rather be sure, wouldn't you? But that's just not the way it works with faith. We have to move before we're sure. We have to step into the floodwaters while they're still gushing past us. And doing that takes courage. It's why the Lord kept telling uh, Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Here's a million dollar question. Where does that courage come from? Like, how did Joshua manage to be strong and brave enough to take God at his word? Like, why was he able to trust when a lot of us can't? I want to show you something that few people ever notice in Scripture, and, and this is, I think, one secret we need to know if we want to be the kind of person who can really trust God in our control or surrender situation. That's what we need if we want to be the kind of person who dares to take the step of faith when nothing is certain and even logic says, don't do it. To see it, we have to go all the way back to the book of Exodus, some 45 years before Joshua faced his Jordan. The children of Israel were still living in the wilderness. Moses is leading the way, and this is what happened. We find this in Exodus 33. See, Moses used to take a, a tent and set it up a long way outside the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who wanted to ask the Lord about something would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp, and they could talk to Moses about it. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise and stand at the entrances of their tents, watching him until he entered the tent of meeting. So anyway, verse 11 of Exodus 33, inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. That's not said of very many people, even in the Bible. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Afterward, Moses would return to the camp. Listen. But the young man who assisted him, Joshua, son of Nun, would remain behind in the tent of meeting. Make careful note of that. Long before he became the leader of his people, long before he stood at the Jordan, Joshua spent a lot of time face to face with God. That's why he's able to trust when others couldn't. That's why he's able to step out bravely when others are retreating. He's learned the truth that makes all the difference. Listen, that constant contact with your creator is essential for transformational living. If you want faith enough to live the life God's called you to live, time with God is simply a must. I think it applies double when you're facing a plan B kind of situation. Constant contact with the creator is essential for transformational living. It's so easy to fall into the trap of assuming like, some people are just more trusting than others. Some people can just trust God in the midst of difficulties and others can't. I don't really believe that. I think that's a cop-out. For most of us, it's nothing more than an excuse. The thing is, surrender takes practice. And it works better in the context of a prior existing relationship. Like, isn't it easier for you to trust someone you know? And while it's possible to muster up faith in, this, in, the, in the stress of a tension-filled situation, it's a lot wiser to lay the groundwork ahead of time. And when we've taken the time to be in God's presence, to understand God's character, faith comes easier. 
trust in Him comes easier. When we've experienced His faithfulness, it's easier to be brave. The more time we spend in His company, the more ready we are to step forward and get our feet wet when He says it's time. Yeah, there have been times in my life that God has sent like incredible opportunities my way, opportunities that could move me like past disappointments and frustrations and into a whole new way of living, but I simply wasn't ready to move. Like I wasn't paying attention. My thoughts and my focus were elsewhere, so I missed the wave, so to speak. There have been other times that I've been ready, but also too impulsive, like not willing to wait on God's timing. So I take things into my own hands, take control, get too far out in front and wipe out. I'm learning more and more that if I want God's guidance and presence in my life, I need to be ready for what He's going to do. I don't have to predict it. I don't have to manipulate it. I just have to be ready. I have to be willing to wait for His signal. And when He says go, I better take that next step. I think it's a good thing to keep in mind when we're just kind of swimming around in frustration and disappointment trying to cope with the loss of dreams. So, in your control or surrender situation, you might be terrified. You might be depressed and overwhelmed. You might be wandering aimlessly, not knowing what to do next. Listen, now is the time to watch and wait for what God is going to do. Psalm 31 reminds us that our lives and our times are in God's hands. And when he says, go, it's time to go. So when the, you sense the timing is right, like Joshua did, I hope you'll trust God's voice in your life. I think the life of surrender is a ride of a lifetime. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm not going to come to you today and thank you that you're in control because I don't think that's very good theology. But I am going to say to you, thank you that you are a faithful, trustworthy God. Thank you that you are with us even when we're not so sure. There are probably some people in this room or watching at church online that are wondering if their current circumstances are going to be the situation that requires more of them than they think they have in them. Like for some, there's no you know, wondering where their Jordan River is. They're there right now. Because we know that eventually everybody faces a Jordan. So I pray that in the face of our own personal Jordan River, that situation that looks like an insurmountable obstacle... I pray that each of us would ask of ourselves, what is it that God is impressing upon me to do? What is it that He's been nudging and prompting and leading me to do? Then I pray that we would step out in faith, whatever that might look like, and we step out in faith because we're trusting You. We're confident that as we surrender to You, we'll find You to be more trustworthy than we even knew. And in the uncertainty of what's on the other side of surrender, that we will find your Holy Spirit ready to comfort, to embolden, to strengthen, to bring you all the glory you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name.